Legally Blonde, Suits, My Cousin Vinny. All badass lawyers, all different. Which begs the question, what type of lawyer do you want to be? Don't waste another second thinking, ugh, I don't even know what types of lawyers there are. Trust us, we've been there. Let's put a stop to that once and for all. Go take the 90-second quiz from new lawyer now what coach Angela Vorpal to give yourself a clear picture of the best fit type law for you. Go to www.whattypeoflawyerquiz.com and take the quiz today. Once you've taken the quiz, send us a DM on Instagram to let us know what type of lawyer you got. We can't wait to hear. guys and welcome back to ladies who law school podcast i'm Haley, and i'm sam and this week's episode is an interview with a special guest but before that we are going to catch up really quick with you guys so we have been officially out of school for about a week um when this comes out it'll be a little bit a week and a half maybe but you know, we talked about last episode, taking a break and how important it is to relax and unwind and try to give yourself some time off. But with that being said, I know it's really hard to do that. And I know me and Samantha struggle with this a lot. Um, And to be quite honest, the whole reason I wanted to start out with this was because I have actually been struggling with this really bad, you guys. I am bored out of my mind I don't know what to do. And I've just been feeling kind of lethargic and like a couch potato because I don't have anything to do. Um, But with that being said, I think that there has been a nice adjustment with working on stuff for you guys. And I've just been able to throw myself into more creative aspects. But I want to be frank and tell you guys that it's really hard to take a break. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, the first few days I was home, like when we recorded the last episode, I was really struggling with taking a break. But I guess right now I feel like I'm taking a school break, but my body is not really taking a break because I'm working right now. So I feel like it's a different kind of break. I don't feel as stressed because it's not school related, but I'm constantly busy at work, which is nice to kind of get my mind off of things. And it actually has helped me kind of forget about, you know, grades coming in in January and stuff. Um, But I've been able to like do a little, uh, like some little legal work here and there, which has been nice. And it's been kind of cool to try some uh, different stuff out, like writing some documents that I've never written before. So I think the break from school has been good. Now, am I going to regret working? I don't know yet. We'll talk about it in three weeks if I'm burnt out by that point. But I think that this is a good balance so far. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm really happy for you that you get to do a little bit of work and make some money because that's always nice, right? I definitely think that you will appreciate that part of it whenever the three weeks ends. Plus, we have uh, a trip planned that you'll be able to take a break with. So I think that you... Like maybe you might regret it a little bit. Like, don't we all kind of whenever we could have just been sitting? But let me tell you, 
I've watched every Christmas movie there is now. And I know you, you would be over it in 10 seconds. So it's working out good for you, I think. Yeah, because I, I do get, I'm, I think I'm like you, like I get bored when there's like not much to do. But I think, like I said, it's a good balance, not, not having to work. But I literally forget about school when I'm at work, which is, I guess, the point, right? Taking a break from school. So, you know, and you get to work on the podcast because, you know, I'm a little busy throughout the day, <laughs> but it's been a good, um, good way to connect with you guys too, so... Yeah. And on that note, guys, we are going to dive into our interview with our guests. Um, so we'll be right back. So we want to welcome Ms. Angela Vorpal. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a formal judicial clerk and big law associate turned law school coach. And so I work with law students to help them master the strategies to compete for top grades and land their first job out of law school. And in addition to being a licensed attorney and an entrepreneur, I'm also a YouTuber. So I have a YouTube channel where I make videos on all things law school, legal careers, and lawyering life. Yeah. So can you tell us uh, where you went to law school? Yeah, I went to SMU Law in Dallas, Texas. And if you are interested in the backstory about why, I can also tell you that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> go please okay. tell us to hear that. I know because I know that you guys ask this on with a lot of your with a lot of your guests. And so yeah, the the process that I took to land at SMU was at the time I was living in Texas. I'm originally from Texas. All of my family is from Texas. And so it was a very sort of straightforward thought process for me to decide that I was going to go to law school in Texas. And so one of the things I had gone to um, undergrad in Austin, I had gone to high school in Houston. And so one of the life lessons that our parents always really drilled into us as we were growing up was being really smart with your money and being really frugal and making sure that you're getting the best bang for your buck and all of those things. And so the thought process, both for undergrad and grad school was always, well, if you can get the same level of education, you may as well do it in Texas where in-state tuition will be cheaper than out-of-state tuition. And so kind of with that mantra in the back of my mind and, and also enjoying living in Texas and having my friends and family there, there just was sort of no, there was, yeah, no ulterior plan than, than applying within the, within the state borders. And so I applied to SMU, Baylor, and University of Texas. And then I also randomly applied to Notre Dame because the, the school I went to undergrad, which was St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas, uh, is a sister university with Notre Dame. And so the thought process was I might be more competitive for scholarship money there. Very cool. So you ended up choosing SMU. What um, stood out about SMU rather than the other schools? Well, really good question because it was the exact same reason that I had applied in state. It was it was to save the most money that I possibly could. And so when I applied, I was waitlisted to University of Texas, which was a huge bummer at the time. I, that was my number one school. And I was really, really devastated by that. I had received a full ride to Baylor Law and I had received a partial scholarship to Notre Dame. And so at the time I was trying to decide, well, do I go to Baylor, even though I wasn't really feeling at home in, in Waco, Texas? I don't know 
if you guys are familiar with Waco, Texas, but I was not really okay. (laughs) I was not sure if that was where I wanted to go or should I wait and, and, and see what happens with the wait list at University of Texas. And SMU was completely out of the question because it's a private school. It's very expensive. And I hadn't heard anything back about scholarship money. So I was waiting. And then around January or February, I got a letter in the mail from, uh, from SMU and there was a scholarship to apply for and it was a full scholarship and I went ahead and applied and it was this, you know, really intense, like long weekend, three day interview process. And I wound up getting it. And so from my brain of very unilaterally go where it will be the most economical, it was like a full scholarship, absolutely no question. And I, and I chose SMU. So quick question about this interview process in case we have any listeners who are looking to apply to similar scholarships. What does that process look like? Like what kind of questions are they asking you and what are they looking for in candidates for those uh, scholarships? So every scholarship is going to be a little bit different. So some law schools have academic scholarships that were that are purely academic. So your LSAT and GPA scores are just going to automatically qualify you for some of these scholarships. And a lot of law schools, I think, also see them as tuition discounts. Like that's kind of how they characterize it, which is basically an incentive for you to go there. Um, some scholarships are diversity centric. And so what they're probably looking for is more of what aspect of, of your life or your personality or, or your person do you feel is diverse and how do you feel like you can add and give back to the legal community through that lens. And the scholarship that I wound up getting and taking was one that was more centric and more focused on uh, sort of democracy and government and sort of public policy and political activism and things like that. And so they were asking questions about how do you, um, or how in your life thus far have you shown um, an interest or um, steps taken to further public policy or further democratic institutions and things like that? And so for me, that wound up being a really good fit because I actually interned um, slash worked at the Texas legislature all through college. So I went to um, college at St. Edwards University, which is located in Austin, Texas, which is also where the Texas Capitol is located. And so when... Um, and this is sort of a, a bit of a, a longer story than, than what you originally asked. But when I was a freshman in college, I wasn't sure what major that I was going to um, really focus on. And I sort of picked political science by process of elimination. And when I went to go to this obligatory meeting with my career counselor that first year, she said, oh, you're a political science major. Why don't you consider interning at the, at the Capitol, which I had zero, zero concept of what that meant or what that was. And I wound up doing it um, and loving it, absolutely loving it. And so that was, um, so that was sort of the start of a lot of things for me, but one of which was the first time I'd ever interacted with lawyers. So would you say whenever you first interacted with lawyers in that time, was that something that drew you to go to law school? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Law school was not on my radar at all until that experience, because when I started interning, there are a lot of staffers, a lot of members that are also lawyers. And so I had never spoken to a lawyer before. I've never really watched lawyer shows. They're just, yeah, there was nothing in my past up until that point that pointed that pointed me towards law school. And when I started kind of seeing how I didn't necessarily know that law school was the reason that all of these 
people had become involved in the political process or in the public policy process. But it was definitely a step that a lot of people had chosen to take. And so, yeah, I loved the work there. I loved the energy and the excitement and and the speed of everything and how people were um, put in a position to really make an impact. And it was a very, it was a very exciting atmosphere. And so when I kind of saw all of these people that I really respected and really looked up to had taken sort of this preliminary step of going to law school first, that was how that that sort of developed in my mind as well. So talking about internships, so you get into law school. What is the first internship that you get while you're in law school? We'll be right back. Hey, guys, we want to take a moment to talk about something that has been a game changer for us busy lawyers, Audible. Yes, Audible has been our go-to platform for incredible audiobooks, offering an extensive library of thrillers, nonfiction, autobiographies, and mysteries. And guess what? We've got a special treat for you. Audible is offering a free trial to our listeners, and all you need to do is check the link in the show notes. It's the perfect opportunity to experience the magic of audiobooks without spending a dime. Speaking of thrillers, I know you are currently hooked on Never Lie by Frieda McFadden. Samantha, can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. The twists and turns in Never Lie have kept me on the edge of my seat during the workday and even when I'm on my daily walks. It's like having a suspenseful companion wherever I go. And for those looking for some financial wisdom, I have been engrossed in My Money, My Way by Kamuku Love. It's packed with practical advice on managing finances, perfect for anyone trying to navigate the complexities of money management. What we love most is the flexibility Audible offers. As lawyers, our schedules can be unpredictable, but with Audible, we can enjoy our favorite books on the go, whether we're stuck in traffic, hitting the gym, or waiting for a court hearing. So if you're ready to embark on a literary journey and discover the joys of audiobooks, click the link in the show notes to start your free trial with Audible. Trust us, you won't want to miss out on this fantastic offer. Yeah. So for most people, I think almost universally, the first internship is your 1L summer. And so that's the first time that you can really do any sort of substantive legal work if you haven't previously worked in the legal industry, which I think is probably the vast majority of us. And so you apply at the sort of end of your first semester, beginning of your second semester. And for me, there, it was interesting because I started law school in 2008, which of course was when the economy totally crashed. And so there were far fewer jobs available. And so there were a few firms that were that were still hiring 1Ls in the summer, but not very many. And I did not get one of those positions. And so I really took kind of the everything else approach. And I was applying everywhere. And one of the other organizations, I do remember this, um, the Association for Public Interest Law was giving out stipends for students interested in public interest internships. And so I was really active with that organization starting my 1L spring semester. And so I wound up getting a stipend and I wound up splitting my summer between the Human Rights Initiative of North Dallas and the Dallas County District Attorney's Office. Awesome. So what do you wish you had known prior to law school? So let's say, you know, any kind of tips or a piece of advice. 
So it's so funny that you asked that because I actually wish I knew so many things before law school because I knew zero before law school that that was actually a really big reason why I started the YouTube channel because I had all of these thoughts in my head that I wanted to get down and into the world because it blew my mind that I think it was 10 years later um, people still didn't know this stuff and people still weren't being told some of these things. And there were still, and are still so many people that he heading into law school that don't know what sort of what the rules of the game are and how you do well and how you go about, um, you know, getting an A in class or how you go about landing a job or, or any, or how to go about networking or any of these things. And so that was definitely me at the time. And so, Kind of looking back, I guess, A, I wish I had a manual that, that told me all of those things. Um, I guess the other thing that I could say that I wish that I knew is that studying in law school was so different than studying in undergrad, which I know you probably have heard a lot. But at the time, I was a really strong student. I had gotten A's all through college. And so I just thought it was going to be, I don't want to say a cakewalk, but I thought it was going to be easy-ish. You know, I thought it was going to be really, really doable <laughs> because I had never had problems with school before. And so when I got in to that first day and I was just inundated with reading and work, like just the massive amount of information that you were expected to consume is, is completely overwhelming. And so I, you know, before I, I would just sort of white knuckle it through college where you just read all the things and you take all the notes and you study um, and you just review that. And then, and then you kind of regurgitate it on an exam. And that always works for me in law school. That doesn't work for many reasons, but one, of them is because you just physically can't do that because there's so much information. And so it took a while for me to realize and understand how the process of, of sort of internalizing the information and being able to put it in a usable format worked. That wasn't just me staying up till 4am trying to get all of my reading done and realizing that it was impossible. I totally agree. I think that law school, they, um, they make you do a lot of work, but you know, lawyers have to do a lot of work. So you just, I guess they're training you, right? That's, that's what they tell us. So, so it's interesting that you say that because it's true. Yes, it is true that you work a ton as a lawyer. Like it's a very, it, it's a very challenging career. There's a lot of expectations. There's a lot on the line, especially if you're working in private practice, the, um, the standard and expectation is perfection, even though you don't technically reach perfection, but like, that's what everyone's always looking for. But in terms of just, it, it's in, it, it depends because in law school, I, I could probably go off on a huge tangent about this, but I don't 100% agree with the way that it's structured and the way that, um, that training is taking place. Because if, if the goal really were training you to be a lawyer, the curriculum would look totally different. It would look completely different. And it would actually teach you, if you wanted to be a litigator, how you file a complaint and how you draft interrogatories and how you uh, go about um, writing a motion uh, for summary judgment and things like that, which it, it isn't really. And so a little bit, I don't, I don't, I don't want to come down too harshly on law school because I really enjoyed my time there, but it is a little bit of a hazing process as well. I really don't think there's any reason that you need to be assigned hundred to 150 pages of reading per night. And then the implication is that you're expected to have mastered it. That's a really, really big issue and a really big problem because as a one L, especially because you don't have anything to compare it to, 
you imagine that you, you're, you walk into class and when your professor starts asking you these crazy detailed questions about the reading that you were supposed to have understood the reading to such an extent that you can answer these incredibly crazy detailed questions, which A, is not possible and B, you don't need to do in order to do well on exams. And so it's, you know, it, it's unfortunately, unless you have somebody who's been through before telling you this, you feel like you need to have mastered this stuff, which is why you need to stay up till, you know, three and four, three or 4 a.m. to read it um, instead of t- sort of taking the steps to to sort of weed out what doesn't need to be done. Focus on what does need to be done to, to get you to to your goal and get you the result that you want. Okay, so I just have a few follow-up questions because you're just giving so much great advice. Okay, so you talk about transferring like these skills that law school teaches you into the real world, right? What are those skills that you would focus on, right? Like we in in you just talk so much about the process, right? Of just going through law school. And I think so many 1Ls are probably able to relate to this and think, oh my gosh. I totally feel seen right now. Like she knows what I'm saying. So how, what do we do now? Like we're two L's, you know, there's some one L's right now. They're They're taking finals like right now. And I'm just like, Oh, this is the craziest time of your life. So like I said, you know, what you had known, like, what would you tell them? So the good news is that even though, I guess I would say a couple of things. So it's interesting because if you can go through law school, you can absolutely go through a legal career. There were so many times when I was practicing that I was up till, you know, 4 a.m. writing a brief and I literally had the thought, well, at least I'm not taking law school exams. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not exaggerating because for law school exams, a lot of them are 100% or near 100% of your grade. And so four months of work come down to one moment, one, you know, two, three, four hour exam. And so that is a hell of a lot more pressure than if you were in private practice and week to week, you are doing projects and you are having conference calls and you're being assigned tasks that every, every single little one of those is not going to be a make or break to, for your career. And even if it's a big brief, especially as a junior associate, even if you're working on a big brief, you are not going to be the last person to touch that. Other people are going to read it. They're going to edit it. And so you're not on your own on an Island. You have a team and you have people who are hopefully mentors to you, answering questions, giving you, giving you advice and giving you direction. Whereas in law school, you are a bit of an Island. All of your grades depend on you. A lot of the time you're talking about one single grade at the end of the semester in also, by the way, in, in a, in a context where for most of us, nobody has explained to you what you're supposed to actually be doing for four months before you take that final. And so I guess the advice I would say is, is it totally gets better in the real world. (laughs) Like working is so much better than law school. And the other thing is, yes, grades are important. Of course they are. They're very powerful. Um, But at the same time, you can absolutely build a legal career, even if you don't meet the grade goals that you have for yourself. There are so many ways to, to build a career that you love. And so the, the, what I tell my students is, of course, we're going to focus on this and we're going to get you the highest grades you can because that opens doors. But whatever you get, then we're going to work strategy on the back end to still get you where you want to be. And so don't feel like it's, you know, it's a make or break. And if I, I don't do this, the game is over. It's not. You know, of course, you, you are going to work hard and do the best you can. Um, but also, 
also keep in mind that the end goal is, is the job, is the career, is the life. And that, and this is just one piece of that puzzle. I, great advice. I mean, that just makes me feel even much better to keep, keep up the hard work. Right. Um, so career though, big law, that's what you did. Right. So why don't we just dive right into that for those of us out there who maybe haven't explored what big law means and maybe go to smaller schools. Um, what is big law? How do you get into it? Fill us in. So big law is a generic term. It doesn't have a specific definition, but generally when people talk about big law, they're thinking the AmLaw 100, AmLaw 200 firms, which are essentially the the top 200 law firms in the U.S. with the highest revenue generated per year. And so that's generally what people are thinking about. The other aspects of big law that people associate with those firms are hundreds, if not thousands of attorneys across offices in the U.S. or internationally. Um, the other the other piece of that also is the billable hours. So the typical billable hour requirements for big law are 2,000 to 2,200 hours per year, which I know means nothing sort of in the abstract, but just to keep that number in the back of your mind, that's kind of um, what, those, what those requirements are. And then also paying market salaries. And so there is a very lockstep structure to how you're paid in big law. And generally speaking, when people talk about big law, they're talking about firms that are requiring that those type of hours and paying that type of scale. So how did you get into big law? I know you said, you know, you came from Texas and I feel like a lot of these big firms are in like New York and Chicago and all these places. So like, how did you get this job to begin with? Yeah, so I did it very by the book. So I went through OCI, which is on-campus interviewing, the the big legal hiring process that happens traditionally at the beginning of your 2L year. And that's why everybody says 1L grades are so important because those are going to be the only grades that you have going into 2L OCI. And so when you start the OCI process, law firms come to campus and you basically have, it's sort of like speed dating type interviews. You have 20 minute interviews. And if they like you, they invite you back to a callback interview, which traditionally means you're going to physically go back to the office and meet usually about six to 12 more attorneys. You're going to have another three to four uh, 30-minute interviews, then you're going to go to lunch for about an hour and a half. So that's the callback interview. And if they enjoyed what they saw, then they're going to call you and um, and offer you a summer associateship for the following summer. So the summer after your 2L year. Once you go through that summer associateship process, if they feel like you are a good fit and you did good work and you didn't do anything crazy embarrassing, then they're going to offer you a permanent job which you start after you graduate. So the sort of September, October timeframe after your 3L year. So what did that process look like for you specifically? Yeah. So the, the process is pretty, it's pretty much the same across all law schools and, and across the country. I guess one of the things that, that you mentioned that I didn't hit upon just now was the fact that a lot of people think big law exists only in New York, San Francisco, DC, Chicago, but that's actually not true. So a lot of the big firms, yes, they're headquartered in places like that, but they have a lot of regional offices. And so there are still a lot of offices in Dallas, for example, Houston, Atlanta, Miami, Seattle, like there are still a lot of a lot of firms that have offices throughout the U.S. And so one of the things that I talk about with with my students who are applying to law school and who are looking to decide where to go to law school, the one of the factors that 
I recommend that they look at is where they want to live and work after law school, because wherever you go to law school, you're going to be most competitive for a job in that city. Not ne- Not to say that you can't find a job elsewhere, but you're going to have professors who are from there. The alumni network is going to be really strong there. The internships you get are going to be in that area. And so it just makes you more competitive there. And so when you think about where you want to go to law school, another factor to consider is how strong is the legal market in that city? Because, for example, Dallas and Houston are not generally cities that people probably think of as really, really having really strong legal markets. But there, if you this is again, kind of going off on a caveat, but if you look at the NALP buying power index, which compares starting salaries with how how much buying power you have with that starting salary, I think Dallas, Austin, and Houston are in the top five. And so you really also should take a look at this, the strength of the legal market where you're going, and then also the starting salaries, um, because in a lot of instances, you can actually if 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 making uh, making a higher uh, buying power index is one of your goals, you could make as much or more money and have that money go further in certain cities that are not sort of the traditional cities that you think of when you think New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and DC. Okay, so I'm very okay. I grew up in Texas as well. So I just wanted to say that now. Um, I lived in Dallas before I went to law school. With that being said, I would love to move back. My family all lives there. Would you consider Dallas a strong legal market? Hell yes. Very, very, very strong. Dallas is very, very strong. Houston is even stronger. And it's it's super interesting. So Dallas and Houston... Since we're, since we're on the Texas kick, which I have no problem <laughs> with at all, um, they are kind of unicorns in the sense that a lot of the law firms, a lot of the big law firms in Dallas and Houston still pay market rate salaries, which now are about $190,000 for first-year associates. And the cost of living is so much lower than, of course, a New York or a San Francisco that that buying power index is insane. It's like it's like double, in some cases, what you would be able to, to, to spend and be able to, um, to make in other places. And so, yes, if you want to go back to Dallas, it's a really strong legal market and not just for big law for mid-sized firms and smaller firms, solopreneurs and things like that as well. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a really great place to be. The legal community is fantastic. Um, I have a lot of friends who are still living there and, um, it was, yeah, it was a wonderful experience going to law school there. Yeah. So did you always want to be in big law or, I mean, you said you were talking about like public interest and that's kind of what got you started. So how did you make that switch into big law? Really good question. So when I started law school, kind of what I was talking about before of having zero idea what I was doing or what to expect or anything like that, I I didn't know what the process looked like but I came straight from undergrad. And so I very much had a mindset of just do the best thing in, in quotes, whatever the best thing was, right? So the goal in school is always to get the best grades you can or the best internship or whatever, whatever you can do. And so in law school, I had the same mentality, get the best grades you can and get the best internship, whatever that is. And so as you start going through law school, you start hearing this term OCI and you start hearing about big law and you start hearing about um, the process and things like that. And so when I started my second year, I was in the top 10% of my class. And so that was just a very 
natural thing that you were expected to do. And as far as I knew, that was the quote unquote best thing to do. And so I did it. And, um, and I, so I went through the process and I wound up splitting my summer between, um, two firms. And so that was in short, that's how I sort of got on the OCI track because it's, it, it's very sort of, lockstep. It was again, very by the book, the way that I did law school. And that was sort of what everyone told you that you should do, or, or the, you know, again, like the best thing you could do if you were in a position to be able to do that. And so that's, yeah, that, that's very like quick and easy how, how I did it. So with that being said, we now try to build up this idea that that's not the only thing that you can do because right. You were very lucky and very intelligent to get to the top 10%, but we all, there's a large percentage after that. Right. So what would you say to the fact that let's say, well, a few things, do you feel like women and not necessarily just women, but we are like put in this position to like, I love how you said, like, I always have to do the best, right? Like that's our mentality. Um, So sometimes we don't always get there. That's one thing. Second thing, and what do you say to that? And then what do you say to the fact that on-campus interviews, big law, what about these, you said it's such a strong legal market. What about all those other people? How do we find them? And should we be helping? I mean, like, yeah, obviously we should be helping them, but as law students, right? What do you say about that? Sure. So to your first question of trying to do the best thing and not, and not always reaching whatever pinnacle that is, I guess the first thing is I would say that my mindset, by the way, has completely shifted from doing the best thing and the thing you're supposed to do and staying on the track and all of that. And I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I had a, a wonderful five years in big lie. Really, really enjoyed it. It was a great fit for me at the time. Um, but then I totally took a sharp right turn and, and did something completely different. And so, um, so I guess I would say that, that it's not a bad thing. Thing to want to do the best thing, especially if you don't really have any other idea of, of what else you want to do or what else there is out there, because it puts you in a really good position to start getting experience, to position yourself to lateral somewhere else. And so the, it, it again, yeah, that's not, it's not a terrible mentality, but to your question, when you say, you know, okay, great. Like you're shooting for this thing and it doesn't necessarily happen. What do you do next? The, the great thing about things not working out the way that you want them to is that you develop all of these amazing skills that you wouldn't otherwise have to develop. And so for me, because I went that straight shot through, you know, OCI big law, the end, I had a job by the time I was two weeks into my second year and I thought I was done, you know, so that was it. I was set and and I didn't really, I, I still worked hard in, in classes to keep my GPA up, but I didn't really feel like I needed to do anything more career development wise. And so I didn't, and I didn't for years. And so I didn't learn any of the, I didn't learn, I didn't practice any of the skills to network, to meet people, to, to reach out, to make myself vulnerable, none of that. And I had to teach myself that 10 years later when I decided I was going to go out and do something different. And so other 
other attorneys, other friends of mine that didn't go the big law route, they had to learn those skills by necessity. And they became, you know, incredibly, incredibly strong in those areas in, in ways that I wasn't even touching and I wasn't even trying for, right? And so it could be the best thing that ever happened to you if you don't go into big law because you're going to have to learn how to talk to people. You're going to have to learn how to build relationships with people. You're also going to do yourself a big favor by kind of tasting and trying and 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 um, and reaching out and, and figuring out what type of law you want to practice because you have to. And that's just part of, part of the process when you don't have a job offer on the table. And those were questions. The questions of what type of law do I actually want to practice? What do I actually want to do? Were questions I didn't ask myself for six, seven years until after, after law school. And so that absolutely definitely can be um, a blessing in disguise. If, if that's something you, you want, or you think that you want, but you, you're not in a position to get it right now. Um, the other question, I don't remember your second question. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the follow-up to that question that you had? Yeah. I just said, what about all the other firms, you know, mm. you listed so many other. Yeah firm sizes other than just the big law. And even in, I think of Dallas, right? I'm sure we have an upper echelon, big firms. They pay that certain salary for the certain billables, but then it just trickles down, right? There's so many other um, lawyers out there. And I mean, I guess the skills that you're describing, these relationship building skills, building a book of business, talking with clients, all those different skills that they don't teach you in law school that you'll need to do are outside of the big law because in big law, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're working with businesses and bigger entities and the work trickles down from partner to associate. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're spot on when you are talking big law, it's a very hierarchical structure and the junior associates are delegated much more minor tasks than you would be delegated in a mid-sized or smaller firm because in a mid-sized firm or a smaller firm, just by sheer necessity of lack of human beings, they need to give you higher level work to do and they need you to learn by doing as opposed to sort of in big law, you tend to put in your time and you kind of do these very specific smaller tasks and then you move up the ladder and you do slightly more important tasks and things like that. Um, but yeah, when you're working in a mid-sized firm or a smaller firm, you're hitting the ground running. You, It's very much trial by fire. Um, and to your point, you are interacting with clients a lot more. I didn't interact with a client until I think I was a fifth year or a sixth year. Um, but in a smaller firm, you know, you're, you're the one intaking the clients. You're actually having these conversations um, about engagement letters and billing rates and um, here's how we, you know, selling, here's how our services can serve you, which is something I didn't touch ever in big law, ever was I ever on a client pitch. And so those are crazy valuable skills for the legal community, for the legal industry. But also if you ever want to become an entrepreneur, if you ever want to become a uh, start your own law firm, those are crazy, crazy valuable skills. So you have, have that piece, which is sort of the, the the client side, client development side, but then you also have the substantive side where at smaller law firms, you're generally going to be, if you're a litigator, you're going to have the chance to be in the courtroom more. You're going to have the chance to be on depositions more. Um, you're going to have the chance to have this client contact. And so definitely don't rule out 
medium-sized firms and smaller firms and things like that, um, just because they don't have the resources to come to campus or they don't have the resources to market as much. Um, and they have to rely a lot more on word of mouth. And so uh, some, some friends of mine now that that I'm almost 10 years out of law school are starting their own firms. And yeah, they don't, you know, there's no way they compete can compete with the big law firms on campus. There's, there's just absolutely no way. And they also don't have the marketing budget um, and the resources to be able to send somebody. And so that's when you start to, when the network becomes really important, when reaching out to people on LinkedIn becomes really important, when informational interviews become really important so that they can find you because you are an amazing commodity and you are going to be a hell of a junior associate. And you just need to be able to find that person that needs you so that you can work really, really hard for them. Yes. Like, I can't, like, that was amazing. Because it's so freaking true. I mean, I can drive around my block and there's just firm after firm after firm. And I'm thinking, I shouldn't be sitting here. I should be working, right? Because... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's so true. Like it's so much more fun to work than it is to go to school. I don't know. Yes. If, yeah, like, and Absolutely. this conversation has solidified that for me. Um, yeah, that was just all great advice. We are about to have to take a break. So I'm going to ask you one more quick question. Okay. So how should students approach big law at their law school if they're interested so I guess one of the, I mean, with that being said, I know school grades is a big importance, but also maybe for these other firms, how would they go about getting a job? So the process of OCI, yes, it's going to be grade dependent because like you said, it's basically a gateway. So law firms approach law schools and say, hey, we would like to interview the top third or the top 25 or the top 10, whatever it is. Um, please send us those resumes or, or please post this on Simplicity, right? And so then they have um, the, the bar that they're looking for. Then once you are accepted for an interview, the process becomes how do you sell yourself in a room in 20 minutes or less, which is essentially what is happening. The good news is that a lot of these questions are repeated over and over and over by law firms. And so the, and they're, and they're generally softball questions. So they're generally questions like, why did you go to law school? Why do you want to work for our firm? Why, uh, what was your favorite class? Now I say these are softball questions. That doesn't mean that they're easy. You need to absolutely have a, have a plan of attack and a strategy to know how to answer these. A big question and a big problem. I actually decided to build out an OCI bootcamp so that people could know exactly what they need to do to prep for OCI because it's a very short period of time that you have to make a really, really strong impression. And so um, there's a lot of prep that goes into it. So you, you generally want to know a little bit about the firm. You want to know how they characterize themselves, how they see themselves in the legal market, what sets them apart so that you can parrot that back to them, which is just my favorite. It's so fun. Um, but you also want to have basically what I call like breaking, breaking your story down into nuggets. And you want to have these formulas for how you're going to answer these questions, because they're going to be asked to you. If you have, you know, depending on how many interviews you have, it could be 15, 20. I had 28 interviews, I think 
think in four days. So it was seven days. Yeah, it was seven interviews per day. And they would ask the same questions. And so I got really, really, really good at answering them. This week's episode is brought to you by BarCast Audio. Whether you're a 1L preparing for your first final season or a 3L looking to get ahead on bar prep, BarCast Audio has you covered. This podcast-like review is insanely great, guys. You can listen to it while you're folding your clothes, you're taking a shower, you're driving, you're walking your dog. There's so many different options. BarCast Audio has flashcards, essay attack sheets, and one-of-a-kind essay workshops that can be your secret weapon. For all of you taking the bar exam in 2021, which is coming up sooner rather than later, BarCast Audio has a special offer just for listeners of our show. Right now, you can get 10% off of your pre-order of the BarCast MBE pack, which includes access to audio lessons, essay workshops, and attack sheets for all seven MB subjects. Just use the promo code LWLS at checkout at BarCastAudio.com. That's LWLS in all caps. All right. So you said that you um, have like a little formula for OCIs. So what are some like interview questions that you might get, or maybe like a top interview question that you, you would get and how would you tackle that? Or how would you tell a law student to tackle that? Sure. So some of the most common interview questions that you're going to get, one is why did you go to law school? One is going to be, why do you want to work at our firm? And one is going to be, what type of law do you want to practice? And I was saying before that these types of questions, they're softball in the sense that they're predictable because all firms are going to ask you the same questions and they're not substantive, meaning they're not going to quiz you on constitutional law or property law. That's not what they're looking for. They're, they're looking to really see how you can handle yourself in an interview, which is not easy. Like it's definitely a skill that you have to practice and learn. Um, but it is nice to sort of have in, in mind the types of questions that you're likely to get. So let's start with what type of law do you want to practice? Because this one was the one that always tripped me up. And I know it's the same for a lot of law students. We have no idea what we want to practice. We don't even know what types of law there are when we start law school or one year in. And and so that one can be really difficult and you don't want to pigeonhole yourself and you're not really sure what they're looking for. And so the way that I always tell my students to answer this question is in the broad, narrow, broad format. And so you start off by saying um, something very broad, like, well, you know, what an interesting question. I'm still getting to know the different areas of the law since I know there are so many great options out there. Okay. So, so we're going to start broad, then we're going to go narrow because we need to give them something because they need to, in their minds, put you somewhere. Um, and I, and I understand the fear of not wanting to be pigeonholed into a practice group, but we need to at least give them, are you leaning litigation or are you leaning transactional so that they can kind of Um, place you. And so what I would recommend saying is I'm leaning towards a litigation practice because I'm particularly interested in a practice area where oral advocacy plays a big role or where strong research and writing skills 
um, play a large role. Or I'm leaning towards a transactional practice because I'm interested in a practice area where business operations is a main focus or where financing is a big focus or tax is a big focus. So give them a little something. So this is the narrowing of where you're leaning and one quick reason why, which also, by the way, hopefully hypes yourself up too. So like where amazing oral advocacy skills come into play because I'm an amazing oral advocate. But but in all seriousness, you want to give them a little bit of something and then you want to back off again. So you want to go broad again and you want to say, but I'm excited to continue learning more about the different practice groups within the firm, particularly those that are growing or need associate help. Because what you want to communicate to them is that you understand that you are not the boss of this process, that you are there to serve the team and serve the clients and that you will do whatever they need. And so that's how I like answering it because it shows that awareness of, hey guys, like wherever I can add the most value, I am down. Like show me what that is, but not so but not so vague that it, that it shows like you haven't thought about it or you don't really understand the difference between litigation and transactional law, um, or you don't necessarily understand at least at a high level what they do. A note to this, by the way, is I did not understand the difference between litigation and transactional law at all. So don't feel badly if you don't, but just um, do some Googling, if you have time to do some research and some informational interviews, definitely do that. I also have YouTube videos out there that you can literally just watch the video and see what the difference between litigation and transactional law is. And so just educate yourself a little bit so that you feel comfortable telling them which way you're leaning in the narrow part of that question. I like that approach a lot. I'm thinking of like, if I ever get interviewed, I would definitely use that broad, narrow, broad approach. Like that's really smart. I've never thought of even like, formulating my answers to an interview question. So I guess, you know, that's something to think about too. So yeah. Oh, sorry. Go go ahead. I (laughs) was just going to jump into something else, but (laughs) no, no, no. I think it's, it's so funny because it, the, the way, the reason that you can formulate them is, is because they're going to be repeated over and over. And so what I found myself doing is that I, without realizing that, without realizing I was formulating them, I would go toward the same anecdotes or I would give the same reasons or I would hype up the same skills. And so then when I, you know, thought back and I broke them down, I was like, like the, the answers to these things actually are very formulaic. Why you went to law school? Why do you want to work here? What type of practice area are you interested in? Um, even to the part, this is, this is totally off topic, but what type of plant would you be? By the way, was a question I got asked, like the most left field question, but there's a formula to answer that too. Like it just becomes, you just feel so much more confident when you have done the prep work to know exactly what you're going to say um, in in the room. And um, I, I guess another piece of advice I would give before we move on is um, the have this list. I came up with this list of best questions to ask in a law firm interview. So you want this interview to be a really good conversation. You want there to be back and forth. You don't know this person that you're talking to. And so the absolute best way to make that a great conversation is asking them questions, asking them questions about themselves, asking them questions about what they do, asking them questions about a typical day, asking them questions about how they got there. And so having that list in the back of your mind is, is so, so, so valuable because it, I used it in every single interview. Cause there's always either going to be, um, a little bit of a, of a dead point in the conversation. There's going to be a little bit of a lull, or they're going to straight up ask you, what questions do you have for us? And you want to show, I am so 
so excited about this and I'm so interested in this. I could go on for days with all of the questions I have for you. So I know one of the questions for sure that people should be asking is like, what a day-to-day at the firm looks like. So just going back to you being in big law, like what did a typical day in the life as a big law associate look like? Yeah, absolutely. So I talking big law junior associates, which is generally going to be your first, second and third year um, is when you're a junior associate. In terms of timing, we had a late start office. So I usually got in around 10, 10, 15, 10, 30 in the morning. And then a normal busy day for me was about 11 hours. So I would leave about 9, 9, 15, 9, 30 at night. For other people who had families or had kids, they would generally come in, not even, some of them would come in a little bit earlier, but even if not, let's say they worked from 10 till about seven, they would leave to have dinner with their families, put their kids to bed and then get back onto their laptops for another two to three hours at night. So 11 hours is generally what a, what a normal busy day would look like. Um, that being said, there were, of course, you know, normal busy doesn't last very long. There's, there's, in, in both litigation and transactional work, it very much ebbs and flows. And there's times where you're very busy and there are times that you're less busy, but it very rarely or for very long, will just go, we'll just sort of like go on this um, nice and neat um, and totally balanced um, rhythm. And so that's kind of the, the beginning and start. And then in terms of what I would be doing during the day, when you're a junior associate, and I'll speak specifically to litigation because I was a litigation associate, um, a big chunk of what you're going to be doing is case research. So if somebody, is, a, a senior associate or a partner is writing a brief for uh, a motion, so there's a ton of motion in litigation. You have a motion to dismiss, motion to change venue, motion for summary judgment, motion to quash, all these different motions that can be filed. And who's ever writing it, the senior associate or partner usually, is going to delegate down to the, the junior associate for them to find case precedent to support whatever argument it is you're trying to make. And the reason that they do that is because they know you know how. And everybody learns that in law school, so that's just a very easy a uh, very easy project to delegate down. And then, of course, as you move up the ranks, you're going to be the actual person drafting the brief, drafting the motion, and, and eventually you'll be the boss of that, of that brief or the, that motion. Um, the other big chunk of what you're going to be doing is called document review, which you guys may or may not have heard of. It's um, sort of the, the worst grunt work of a litigation associate, and it's the thing that burns people out the most. And basically what it is is in litigation – Huge, a huge chunk of the litigation process is discovery. So you get to ask the other side for documents and they get to ask for documents from you, especially if you're, uh, this is for anybody, but usually in big law, you're talking corporation versus corporation. And so when you are producing your client's documents before you can actually send them, somebody, a lawyer has to look at them and has to decide, are they relevant or not? Are they privileged or not? And so you are sitting in front of a computer and you are click, 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 clicking, relevant, privileged, confidential, like it literally like in a, in a document software. So that's what document review is. Firms are starting to outsource that more. So, you know, in an ideal world, junior associates aren't doing a ton of that. And I didn't have to do a ton of that either. So hopefully that's, that's the trend and that's what's what, that's what continues. But if we're being totally honest, that's going to be some chunk of what you're doing. The other chunk of what you're going to be doing is again, speaking about the discovery process is there's a lot of written discovery, meaning the other side will literally send a document that says, um, like interrogatories, 
you guys may or may not have heard of interrogatories, but they basically send um, a document saying, we send us all the documents related to this contract. Send us all the documents related to this phone call. Send us all the documents related to this partnership agreement or whatever it is. And then it's your job to send answers to those written discovery questions. So that's a lot of what you're going to be doing as a junior associate. And then as you move up through the ranks, you're going to be doing some of the more fun projects, which is prepping for depositions. So drafting the Q&A for depositions, actually going to take the depositions, actually drafting the briefs, actually going to oral arguments. Um, And so those are sort of the higher level, more substantive tasks as a litigation associate that you will eventually be doing. Um, And as a, as sort of a callback to what we were talking about earlier, if you're talking about, this is big law, which is again, very hierarchical, but if you're talking about a mid-level for a mid-sized firm or a smaller firm, you could be, you could be taking a deposition your first week. Like you could be going into court your first day. So like these types of these types of more substantive roles, because they're generally going to be on a smaller scale with smaller clients or, or a smaller amounts of money involved, it's not as crazy that a brand new lawyer would be in charge of them. As opposed to in the big law world, you're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and there's no way they're going to let a first-year associate on their first day go and argue a motion for a, a case of that magnitude. So that's really the give and take when you're talking about larger firms versus smaller firms is you, is you sacrifice uh, for a few years those higher-level tasks if you're going to go into the big law world. So do you think big law is for everyone? Definitely not. <laughs> I would say that big laws is not for most people um, and definitely not for very long periods of time. So what a lot of people will use big law for is a jumping off point. So a lot of people, if you are eligible to participate and you uh, get a permanent offer, a lot of law students, obviously myself included, will take it for a number of reasons. One, they pay you a lot of money. So you have the ability to pay off student loan debts a lot more quickly than you otherwise would. Two, there's the prestige element involved. So if and when you are ready to lateral somewhere else, it just looks better on your resume to have that name. And so that's what a lot of people do it for. Um, But most people head into big law with the expectation that they're not going to be there for very long. And so I think the statistics on it are within three years, something like 50% uh, and this isn't just big law, by the way, this is all law firms, but within three years, um, about 50% of associates leave to go somewhere else. It might be another firm. It might be public interest. It might be government. It might be something else, but um, about half leave. And then within five years, about 85 to 88% leave. So there's a huge amount of turnover. Firms know this, they know it's a problem um, and they are ostensibly working on it. <laughs> but it's still a very, very high turnover rate. Um, And so if you are thinking about big law in in those terms, I think I I have absolutely no problem with that strategy at all. I think it's a great strategy. It worked really well for me. Um, Keep in mind, though, that the biggest thing I'll say about if you go into big law is to not sort of get... um, to comfortable with the lifestyle or comfortable with the paycheck. Because if your whole goal is to do something else, then you need to be really careful about budgeting and saving and investing so that you can put yourself in a financial position to then be able to leave. Because what tends to happen is that people get set into a particular lifestyle and then they don't feel like they have the freedom to leave big law. And I worked with a lot of 
associates who were miserable and who di- who wanted to leave and who 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 didn't want to stay and were burnt out and weren't you know weren't motivated anymore but they felt like they were kind of stuck there which is the concept of the golden handcuffs. And so if that is the strategy you're using it for, just keep that in the back of your mind that if there, you know, if, 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 um, an exit strategy is, is built in there somewhere to make sure that you're being very smart about your money so that you can make that transition as easily as possible. Um, but a lot of what we talked about earlier too, is that no, that big law is not necessarily the place where you are going to get the best use out of your skills, where you're going to develop the best as an attorney, um, where you're going to have the ability to interact with clients and, and, and shore up your networking strengths and abilities and things like that. So absolutely not. Um, it, it's just hard. I think the hardest part is, is to know. So when you're in law school, there's no way that you're going to have a really clear picture of exactly what you want to do or exactly what you want it to look like because you just haven't done it yet. And so I guess what I would say is don't be too caught up on the first job you get out of law school because statistically you're going to leave very soon anyway. And I remember thinking like during OCI, even that the decision of where I was going to start, like what law firm I was going to start in, was it going to be, you know, this one or that one or this name or that place or, or whatever felt so important. And it, it, you know, of course it feels important at the time. And there's no, there's no problem with that. I felt that too, but just remember that this, this is the first step in a very long career. If you really enjoy being a lawyer, you could be a lawyer for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so just, just remember that whatever that first job is, is it, even if it's not in the sector that you want, or even if it's not in the niche that you think is the best fit for you, that is totally okay. You are still going to have the ability to build up some sort of skill set to be able to start networking. It's so much easier to find your next job than it is to find your first job. So try not to get too, I guess, precious or heartbroken about the first one. Um, and then and then really just focus on becoming the, the, the most amazing lawyer you can be and building up that reputation and building up that network so that you can open doors when you're ready and you find something that really is a good fit for you. So the question everybody wants to know, why did you leave big law? Yeah. So my journey through big law, there were a lot of factors at the time, but one of the biggest ones that really got me starting to think about leaving big law was that I had just finished a really big trial. It was the first trial that I'd ever been on start to finish. So filing of the complaint all the way through jury verdict. So that felt very significant somehow. And I, of course you can go through you know, hundreds and thousands of trials in your career, but that was the first one that I'd seen um, start to finish. So it felt like a very cyclical close. And at that moment, I also felt like for the first time I had some space to really look up and look around and decide, is this what I want to be doing? Because when you're in big law or any, any law, law firm job or, or legal job, you are very, you're working a lot of hours and you're try, you know, you're learning a lot. It's a huge, it's a huge learning curve. And, you know, you feel like your nose is in, is down and you don't really feel like you have um, time and energy to, to really think about, oh, if, if I could do anything, what would I do? Or is this the thing that I ultimately want to be doing? Um, and I felt that way too. So I didn't even, I didn't even consider these, these thoughts or these questions until this moment. And so I'm starting to think, all right, I, I, I enjoy this. I enjoy the litigation process. But what had happened was I was becoming known as an IP litigator because 
that's, those were the cases I was being staffed on. And of course that made sense, but I never set out to be an IP litigator. That was never the plan. You know, I was just trying to just try to do my job well and, you know, and, and, and try to learn as much as I could. And so I was never, I realized I was never in love with IP. I was never in love with patent litigation. Um, and the thing that really cemented it for me was that there were other associates that would send out these team emails with industry news and blog articles and, you know, judicial opinions and other cases. And I would just always ignore them because they were not relevant to what I was working on. I was like, I'm not going to spend extra time reading this. And it finally clicked that these people are reading this stuff in their off hours, that they are truly interested in this. They're totally nerding out on IP and and patent cases. And I'm not, and I want to go find the thing that I'm so interested in. And I'm so into that. I'm, you know, randomly sending people like blog articles about it. And so at that point I was like, all right, you know, it's not IP. Um, And then I kind of thought a little bit more about, well, okay, are there any other practice groups that I really feel drawn to? The answer was no, not in, not in the civil litigation world. And the, the thought that just kept coming back to me over and over was this six-week internship I had as a 1L um, summer intern at Human Rights Initiative. And the, wh- what they do is they focus on um, serving immigrants and refugees who are seeking asylum or who are seeking U visas or seeking trafficking visas. And that was amazing. Like I had so much fun there. I thought it was interesting and challenging. And also that you were actually, you know, making an impact that felt great. And so I, you know, at that point I was like, all right, I, I want to try that. Um, because, and, and, you know, and that's, again, I want to emphasize that that's in no way to say that I, I didn't enjoy the years that I was in law firm life. I really did. It was fast paced and it was challenging and it really pushed me to my potential and and helped me learn so much. But at, but at that point I was ready for a bit of a new adventure. And so that's what ultimately, yeah, that's what ultimately made the decision for me. That's awesome because it truly focuses down on the fact that your career ebbs and flows and you grow and you change. And I want like all the listeners out there who are young law students, right? To think about the fact that you went to big law and you learned so much, you became a litigator and you saw this whole trial. And then you thought, you know what? I did what I said I was going to do, but now I want to do something that like lights my fire. So what, what is it? And so now how's the transition? What do you do now? Talk to us about that. Yeah. So for about three years, I was working in the public interest human rights space and I really enjoyed it and really loved it. And, you know, this was a a really big transitional time for me because if you guys have read Lean In, then you know the, the famous quote that she said, which is your career is not a ladder, it's a jungle gym. And that was the first time that that really became real to me because I thought, and, you know, especially if you're going you know, start to finish. I was, again, I was straight through, I was straight through undergrad to law school and it just felt like this, this, this track, this very clear track. And so I just thought that any transition was going to be one more rung up this proverbial ladder. And it wasn't at all. Like anytime you try to change, um, practice groups or sectors or anything like that, it is, it's a bit of a mess. It's a very big transition because you haven't been in that world. It's a whole new community. 
Um, it's a, it, it's, it's a whole new sector. And so it was a very sort of tumultuous time for me. And there was a lot of doubt. Did I make the right decision? Um, what should I have walked away from the money to do something I wanted to do? Should I, is this really what I want to be doing? Is it something related to this? And so it was, it was really, really messy. Um, and so if anybody else is feeling that right now or going through a transition time, just know that that is one, you're not alone, but two, that doesn't mean it's not the right decision. It just, life isn't that clear cut a lot of the times. Um, so I was giving myself, um, a lot of time to sort of work on pro bono cases and do a lot of volunteer work and things like that. Um, I wound up getting a day job. Like it was, it felt very much like instead of going up, I felt like I had, I'd fallen all the way to the bottom of another ladder that I then had to climb. And it was crazy because once you, you know, in, in another world, in another sector, you're this, you know, this level of an associate and, and this level of prestige or this level of responsibility or whatever it is. And for me, I felt like a baby lawyer all over again. And it was crazy. And so, um, and so, so I, yeah, so I did that for about, about three years and I actually, it was so funny because I was, um, I was offered what I thought at the time was my dream job. It was the thing I had been working for. And when I was offered it, um, I realized that the answer was no. I realized that as much as I had enjoyed sort of that three-year process, the other thing that I had done during those three years was start this YouTube channel. And as I was making these videos, it was always meant to be a part-time gig. It was always meant to be just a passion project. And I realized that as people were asking me questions and asking for advice, I would spend hours pouring over these questions and just loving it. Like I, <laughs> if you go on some of these videos, these comments... Um, that people, questions people ask, I write back like a novel. Like it's just like, like seven paragraphs of like all the thoughts that I have about the, you know, law school and the legal industry and careers and strategies and all of these things that I've learned. And so kind of, um, I, you know, nothing really, it didn't really hit me until or like late last year. So almost a year ago today when it, when it kind of fell on me like a pile of bricks, oh my gosh, I love doing this. I think this is the thing. Like, I think this is the next thing that I want to do. Um, and so at the beginning of this year, January, 2020, I started as a law school coach and I started actually teaching law students and new lawyers, all the things that I had learned and all the strategies that had helped me get to where I had gotten to. And, um, and it's just been such an amazing year and it's been so much fun. And it's, it's, it's just been great to kind of see once people have these gaps in knowledge filled, it just makes you so much more confident and, and powerful in making your own decisions and kind of planning out your own life. Instead of hopefully, my goal is to to avoid the feeling of just sort of flailing and floating and and just uncertainty. And, and although that will always be a part of the process, it's really nice to have sort of um, an action plan or a guide or a roadmap to like, Let's think about what it is you want to do and how to get you there. And so that's been, yeah, that's been um, what I've been working on um, for almost a, yeah, almost a year to date. That is awesome. Passion project turned into pain gig. I love it. One of the things that you talked about was that time period after big law, whenever you're just trying to like figure out who you are, are as a young lawyer. And you talked about going back to being a baby lawyer. Do you feel like that was because of some of those skills we talked about earlier, like the networking and the client skills and like 
building your book of business? Yes and no. So yes, those would have been awesome skills to have developed along the way. And I think that I may not have felt as sort of deer in the headlights if I had had those practices in place to be able to kind of reach out to different people and and maybe and maybe try to get additional advice and things like that. That being said, the sector that I was looking to get into was so different than what I had done before that any sort of client relationships I would have built or any relationships I would have um, developed up to that point to help me lateral, for example, to another firm or to um, to a corporation or something in the private in the private sector probably wouldn't. Maybe it would have. Maybe it would have, but but wasn't directly related to what I was looking for. And so, the feeling of being a baby lawyer really came from every sort of every niche of law is is very very different, and you start to become an expert in a very specific field just because nobody can become an expert in all of the thousands of fields of law. It's just impossible. And so, when you start niching down. Um, you develop a, a very specific understanding of that law. I don't want to say very specific skill set because the skill sets are very transferable, but a very specific understanding of a particular type of law. And so when you enter a new industry, it not only for you is new, but then people looking at you to hire you see you as new. Oh, you have never worked in this or, oh, you don't have you know this specific uh, experience in this specific type of court and that kind of thing. And so you also have to do the hard work of 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 reproving yourself and showing them that you that these are transferable skills that I have that I you know even though I don't have experience in this particular sector that I absolutely can you know still serve your clients and and still help serve your mission and things like that and so it it I guess I would say though that I 100% don't regret it and part of life too is in my opinion continuing to take new adventures. And so if you are in a practice area and it's wonderful and it checks all your boxes and that's great and you should stay, but if you're starting to sort of get restless and think what else is out there? What else could I maybe be really good at? Um what else could be challenging and interesting in a new and different way cuz I feel like I kind of have this down <laughs> you know, and I want to try something new, then um absolutely lean into that. It's not going to be an easy transition, but in my book, it's 100% worth it, as opposed to continuing to do something just because you've always done it. I also think that what you're doing kind of shows that with your JD, right, you can really do, you don't have to necessarily be practicing law um, to be successful either, you know, because there's so many jobs that are just like JD preferred. And now like you've started your own business and like your experience and your degree has obviously helped you get to the point where you're at. So what are some specific things that you're helping your students that you coach? What do you help them achieve? Like, is it grades? Is it with interviews? Like, what are some of the things that you really focus on? Yes and yes. So the three big areas that I focus on with my law students is one is time management, because what tends to be the case or what is absolutely true about law school is that time is your most precious resource. And that's the truth about life in general. But when you're talking about a semester system where you have 16 weeks to start learning the thing and then perform on an exam, it's 
absolutely imperative that you're using that time as efficiently and effectively as possible. And so what tends to happen is that if you go into the system and you don't really know what you're supposed to be doing and you don't really know how to go about studying, a lot of that time sort of gets sucked away into, into practices or into strategies that don't, don't get you to where you want to be. So time management is huge, how you're spending your hours and days and weeks and months. Um, every semester. The other thing we focus on is grades. So the actual study process for how you go from day one um, and how, of course, how you're spending your time, what you're focusing on, what you're not focusing on, and then final exam strategies so that you can take everything that you've prepared and all the hard work that you've done throughout the semester and really perform well on exams. Because the absolute most devastating feeling, I think, is that you've poured your heart and soul into this semester for this one grade, for this one exam, and it and it turns out not to be what you want it to be. And it's incredibly frustrating to think, what else could I possibly have done or be doing? Because um, I, you know, I totally worked my butt off for this, and so I help my students know exactly how to take those steps so that the results can reflect the work that they've put in. And then the third thing we focus on is career development. So how do you find job leads? How how do you craft an application to get you into the door? And then once you're in that interview room, how do you totally blow them away? I mean, I like want to learn all of it. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm like, where can I sign up? <laughs> can, I, can we hang out and you can teach me all your tricks? Right. Because I want it, right? And I... That's our whole entire community that we've built. I want you to know that, Angela, because... We are all looking for the secret sauce that you have. So why don't you tell everyone where they can find you? Sure, absolutely. So I am on Instagram at Angela Vorpal. You can find me on LinkedIn, also at Angela Vorpal. And then I have a ton of free videos on YouTube, youtube.com slash Angela Vorpal. So I am always around. DM me, message me, feel free to ask me any and all questions. Um, I also have a free Facebook group, um, the Law School Network. So you can find me in there. I'm always hanging out and answering questions. And so, yeah, answering y'all's questions is my favorite thing to do. And it took me three years to realize how much that this meant to me and to be able to really put back into people who are coming into up through the system and, and up through the ranks, um, all the things that I felt like still were not being taught and still were not being communicated 10 plus years later. And it was a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about how this stuff is still not, yeah, it's still not being taught. And so that was the impetus to start the YouTube channel in the first place was like, I, I need to get this out of my brain and, and into the universe somehow. And that was at the time, the best way that I, I felt like I could do it. So there's a ton of stuff on there. And of course, feel free to ask me any other follow-up questions as well. We will definitely link everything in our show notes and on our Instagram. And I know that our listeners are going to be all over your YouTube because we've watched a few videos and they're great. So oh, thanks, I know guys. that they're going to go crazy for it. And so I'm really excited for this to be posted on Monday. So, <laughs> you know? um, oh, thank you. So yeah. So thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, guys, this was an absolute pleasure. And I am such a big fan of the podcast. You guys are doing incredible work and the advice that you're giving and the mentorship and the the motivational, you know, speeches and, and Instagram posts and things are just, it's it's so valuable. And I know that there's a ton of people out there that really, really need it. So hats off to you guys. And this podcast is just incredible. So guys, that was great. 
I literally learned so, so much. I think, I mean, we go to school in Oklahoma and we honestly don't get a lot of exposure to like big law. So I think for us, this was really interesting to kind of get exposure to something that we might not be exposed to otherwise. Yeah. And I just want to make a quick note because we hear this term big law and I don't really know if I understood it until like after (laughs) talking to her, basically just means that your clients are big, (laughs) meaning big money. So it can be anybody, you guys, like you might have a per, like most entities can make more money. Corporations make more money than individuals. Right. But your clients are bigger and they have bigger pocketbook and it trickles down all the way to, I mean, if you're doing criminal law, it's a totally different aspect than what she was even talking about, you know? Um, And just even bringing in the transactional and litigation in the civil side, there's just like a tree of law that goes up and it branches out. And um, this was a very interesting part of that. And I'm so glad we got, had her on to talk about it because like you said, I learned so much. It was crazy. Yeah, so you guys should definitely check out her YouTube channel. Like I said before, all of her links will be down below. But um, other than that, you know, we have merch still. Um, If you guys want to order merch, it's going to probably be delayed at this point if you're ordering for Christmas because they are trying to get orders out. as Because we don't send out, I guess just PSA. Haley and I don't personally send out the merch orders. We have a company that does it for us. So it's all um, on their schedule and it's really out of our hands. Um, So that's why we kind of pre-warn you guys that, you know, because we're not doing it. We can't, we're not, you're not relying on us. You know, we're relying on the third party. So just as a warning, if you are trying to order by Christmas, it might not get there if you're ordering as of right now. Good to keep that in mind because we know that you guys are probably ordering stuff for your stocking stuffer because there's so much little cutesy merch that you can put in your stocking. I mean, you'd obviously be asking for it on your Christmas list, but you know what I mean? Like she said, we're going to link a ton of the stuff that she talked about below. I know I was taking notes, LOL. Um, but don't forget guys that keep up with your hobbies and your passions because that stuff is what keeps you going and keeps you working and keeps you sane and happy. Like you shouldn't live your life in a place where you are upset and depressed and working towards something that you just think you're supposed to do. I know I've definitely dealt with like this fine, this need to find fulfillment in my life um, a little bit earlier than when I feel like Angela did, right? Because she had this path set for her in law school and then with OCI and going to a big law firm and how it takes you a while to move up in the ladder, right? Um, So if anyone else is going through some soul searching anywhere in their career, that's why I like the fact that she found it and it ebbs and flows. So just keep that in mind. And I hope that everyone is staying warm, staying healthy, and also don't forget to keep up the hard work in studying for finals. I just wanted to add that, you know, we mentioned before how, you know, grades are super important for these big law positions. And I know that, you know, you guys are finishing up finals. And I know that my first semester, 
after finals, it's pretty stressful that month where you're waiting for your grades and just be thinking like grades do not define you. Like if you don't get into the 10 top 10% and get that big law interview, clearly that's okay. Like she said, you might get more experience at a smaller or mid-sized firm anyway. So just keep that in mind. I know that it's a stressful time and we feel you, trust me. So just keep, you know, keep positive, stay positive. Yeah. And there are so many other jobs out there than just big law firms. So, you know, like Samantha said, it doesn't matter if you don't get exactly where you thought you were, because, you know, like I like to say, God has a plan. And as soon as you make a plan, he just laughs. So just ride the waves and you will make it in. You put in the hard work. And I am so excited for all of you guys to finally get to break in Christmas and new year. We can get to 2021. I'm so excited. Yes. Um, Please let us know what you guys have planned for break, what Netflix shows you're going to be watching, all the fun hobbies that you're going to be doing, the face masks that you're going to be doing. Please, my skin needs some like moisture and I don't (laughs) know what mask to buy. So if you have one out there that's like a lifesaver, send it our way, please. For sure. Well, guys, like we said, stay safe, stay healthy, stay warm. And we love you. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.